Okay. Before we begin, I have two warnings for you. They they may seem unrelated, but they're definitely connected. The first warning is that our passage this morning, which is uh, Philippians two nineteen to thirty, will at first seem just like boring travel plans. It's the equivalent of looking into the Apostle Paul's email with a travel agent about his trip to Philippi. There, there doesn't seem to be, be much theology, and even worse, there seems to be a lot less application. How can ancient travel plans help shape us into better disciples of Jesus? Some of the greatest truths, however, come out of the mundane, come out of the unsuspecting, come out of the tedious, come out of the commonplace elements of life, like travel plans. But that's our first warning. Our passage might seem uninspiring at first, maybe even a little dull, but stick with it. And now the second warning. Second warning is you you are almost certainly going to see me cry this morning. Almost certainly. I may be able to hold it in. I might get a little leaky. I might even need a minute to compose myself. But it's it's not like I'm wanting to cry in front of you. That's not ever my goal. But I know myself, and I know that I'm almost certainly going to cry in front of you this morning. You've been warned. The reason that I know I will likely well up is because I'm going to play a quick video clip for you here in a couple minutes. It's a clip that I've seen several times before. I may have even shown in church before. You may have seen this too, but it's a clip that never fails to to stoke the fires of emotion in me. Um, that's that's because I've noticed something about myself. Ever, ever since I became a dad, all kinds of things make me cry. I, but there's something in particular that makes me cry, um, and that's honor. Seeing people get honored always strikes an emotional chord in me. So if I'm watching a movie and somebody dies, I don't cry that somebody dies. I cry when it shows how that death affects another character and how much they miss that and the, because they're honoring their, their dead loved one. I go to award ceremonies at the school and proms at the school and, and I cry for those kids, not just because I'm proud of them or because I'll miss them when they, they leave to grade 10. I cry because they're being recognized and celebrated for who they are and for their achievements. And I make, especially awards nights, those kids win those awards and I'm just a mess. I, I got to sit in the back and just kind of like this because I'm so happy that they're being honored in that way. Um, at weddings, I don't cry when the bride comes down the aisle. I smile. And at, that's a great moment, but that's not what makes me cry. What, what makes me cry is when the parents give honor to their daughter in the acceptance speech or son, whoever it may be. But that I get emotional when, when parents give a speech that honors them and shows how much they love them and celebrates their beautiful union, partly because I know that's going to be me one day. Um, so it's, it's honor that gets me all the time, especially the honor of close relationships when people recognize the love they have together, which brings me to the wartime heroics of a man named Sir Nicholas Winton. And he didn't become a sir until uh, after 1988. But Nicholas Winton was a relatively wealthy young man who visited Czechoslovakia just prior to the outbreak of World War II. And while he was in Czechoslovakia, he saw hundreds of kids herded into trains. And he figured out where those trains were going. They were going to certain death for these children. They were mostly Jewish. And he was able to purchase their safety and deliver them to England. But then, amazingly, he never told anyone about it. He didn't, not even his wife. He, he saved 669 children from a cruel early death and he never told anyone about it until 49 years later in 1988, his wife was going through a bunch of scrapbooks in the attic and came across this one that had these lists of all these names of children and she gave it to a reporter and the reporter looked into it. Um, and this is the result. So let's watch. 
all the letters. But back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. Hello. <laughs> Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? When men or women of honor, worthy of honor, receive the honor they deserve, that gets me every time. Sir Nicholas Winton was honored with his much-deserved appreciation for his selfless act, which saved nearly 700 uh, innocent children from certain death at the hands of the Nazis. So he knew he got invited to this BBC program. He knew they would be talking about him. He had no idea that he was sitting next to this woman who he had saved. Another woman on his other side presented the little tag she had around her neck on that day and thanked him and kissed him on the cheek. And then most of the audience there that day was was children he had saved, and he had no idea. That that, that kills me. And so these, these people were given a chance to show their appreciation and to honor the man responsible for every breath that they take. Sir Winton did this at risk to himself. If he had been caught, he could have been punished. Um, and he did it without any need for recognition of any kind. In fact, he went out of his way to not tell anyone about this. They had to track, they had to find the story by chance and then track these children down. He didn't even tell his own wife, which if Angie was here, I'd say, just imagine in 50 years what you'll find out about how great I am. <laughs> there's, there's nothing. But recognition of honor is a beautiful thing. In fact, I would argue it's one of the most beautiful things and it gets me right in the feels which brings me back to the boring travel plans that our passage um, from our passage that I warned you about earlier it's an easy passage for us to skip over or gloss over without gleaning anything from it but that would be I think a mistake as we wrap up the second chapter of Philippines I think we'll find a portrait of what should be considered honorable in the kingdom of God and we'll find it in the lives of three honorable men and a bonus fourth honorable man whose names are recorded in the book of life for all eternity. So let's read Philippians 2, 19-30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I know how things go for me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Now, there's no getting around it. 
this passage does feel like a bit of an interruption in the flow of beautiful, powerful theology that Paul's been laying down for the past two chapters. Um, so it's theology, theology, powerful exhortation, lessons, instruction, and then all of a sudden travel plans. Usually Paul inserts his travel plans at the end of a letter. You can read almost any of Paul's letters and you'll see travel details and accomplices listed at the end of it. But here he crowbars it conspicuously, right smack in the middle of everything. He began this letter by updating the Philippians about his circumstances, and then he addressed their own circumstances before instructing them on how to handle their difficult circumstances, their their suffering, their oppression, and, and the way they're to handle those things is with unity, humility, courage, sacrifice, rejoicing, all those things we've been talking about for, for months now. But now... Out of these authoritative instructions, he suddenly returns to his own plans. It's a little jarring, especially after the whiplash of Old Testament references we looked at last week. Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, and then all of a sudden, here's my plans for you now. It seems to interrupt the flow of things. Why didn't he just leave his travel plans to the end as usual? Well, to begin answering that question, I think it will pay to look at these travel plans a little closer. As we said way back in January in in the introduction to this book, Paul's writing this letter for two reasons. A, as a way to say thank you to his beloved Philippians for the financial donation they've sent to him. And B, to respond to the news he has heard regarding the hardships and struggles facing the congregation in Philippi. Namely, persecution from outside the church and this creeping sort of divisive dissension, selfish arguments that are happening within the church. So he writes to address those things. Central to both of those purposes is the relatively unknown Epaphroditus. All we know for sure about this man is recorded here in Philippians 2. It was Epaphroditus who gave Paul the update on the progress of the gospel in Philippi and all the struggles in Philippi. And it was Epaphroditus who was charged with the task of delivering part A, that sizable financial gift. He was the one who carried it to deliver to Paul. Although he was almost certainly accompanied by a group of other people because traveling Roman roads in those days, you were at risk of robbery. So with this huge donation, he would have had people with him. But at some point, Epaphroditus felt deathly ill. Now, we don't know what happened for sure, so this is speculation. But the most likely scenario is that Epaphroditus contracted his sickness during the long journey towards Paul and that he continued on to Rome with some of his traveling party returning to Philippi to alert them to Epaphroditus' sickness. So most likely he got sick on the way, but pressed forward courageously anyway while part of his party went back to tell the Philippians, because the Philippians know that he's sick. They just don't know what's come of it. So part of the reason Paul writes this letter and sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi is to ease their stress. They know he's sick. They haven't heard how he's doing. So he sends back Epaphroditus to so everybody can be happy. So that situation explains a couple things. First of all, it would explain how the Philippians were aware that Epaphroditus is sick, and it would explain how they were, as verse 28 says, quite anxious to hear how he was doing. It will also explain how Epaphroditus knew that the Philippians knew he was sick. In verse 26, he says he's distressed that they're distressed for him. In fact, the verse says he was distressed because they knew he was ill, but they didn't know that he had recovered by the grace of God. And in those days, especially traveling on a road, if you fell deathly ill, that meant you were most likely were going to be dead. They didn't have the medical knowledge that we have. And so to recover from something like that, Paul uses the language of miracles. He says, indeed, he almost died, but God had mercy on him and on Paul. 
saved him um, what is it suffering upon suffering because if Epaphroditus had come to give Paul this gift and and gotten sick doing so and died, imagine the guilt Paul would have felt. So that didn't happen by the grace of God. This also explains the direness of Epaphroditus' condition and the bravery that Paul commends him for. Like I said, getting sick during traveling isn't like your four-year-old getting car sick and throwing up in the backseat of the minivan and then being fine once you get him out and clean him up. Getting sick in those days, especially traveling, was very dire indeed. Um, the troubles were multiplied when you're you know, in the middle of nowhere on some road surrounded by possibly robbers. So it was it was a big deal that he got sick in this way. So if Epaphroditus did finish his journey to Rome, bravely risking his own well-being in order to complete his mission, and fulfilling his duties when he could have instead dipped into these this gift that they're bringing to Paul, he could have used that money to make himself well and chose not to for the glory of God and for the furthering of the gospel— well, if that is the situation, then Epaphroditus is worthy of recognition and honor indeed, right? He risks life and limb to do this thing. It's, it's a beautiful story. So Epaphroditus had carried the news and the offering to Paul, and it's Epaphroditus who in return carries the letter in return, which is this letter, Philippians, back to the Philippians. Sending him back to Philippi was an act of grace for both Epaphroditus and the Philippians, since they were deeply concerned about his health, and he was deeply concerned that they were deeply concerned. Paul could have used the extra help in Rome. Things weren't going super great for for Paul either, as he says in chapter 1. There's people who are um, attacking him, who are preaching the gospel for selfish reasons. So the gospel's spreading, but there's still some distress to Paul. He could have used the extra help. He could have used Epaphroditus. Instead, he sends that extra help back to his friends in Philippi with a gracious and eloquent commendation for Epaphroditus that alleviates any tension there may have been. They sent Epaphroditus to take care of Paul, and now, to their shock, Epaphroditus comes walking back into their church. So there may have been some people like, what are you doing here? We sent you to be with Paul. We know you're sick. We're glad you're better, but get back to Rome. There may have been some people who thought that. So Paul writes this glowing commendation to make it clear that, no, I want Epaphroditus to go back to you. It's actually pretty selfless on Paul's part. So Epaphroditus went first, and Timothy was to follow later, after Paul knew about his own future plans. And he seems pretty sure that he's going to be released from prison, and tradition holds that's what happened. Timothy is a bit of a ringer for the early church. You know that phrase, ringer? A ringer is a star player who joins a team out of nowhere and leads them to victory. It's like if you were playing beer league hockey in Westlock, and your team really sucked until in the final tournament, Ryan Nugent Hopkins joins your team. Chris Lance joins your team. I was going to use Ryan Nugent Hopkins, but we'll say, Chris, thank you, Barry. No, we we can use Ryan Nugent Hopkins because he's not ever playing meaningful hockey in May anyway. So he's got the time. So he joins the team. And with the help of your ringer, the Nuge, you win the whole dang thing. So that's what a ringer is. And when it came to churches in need of support during times of distress and oppression, Timothy was the ringer. He was the ringer to the persecuted churches in Greece and Asia Minor. He was one of Paul's most trusted accomplices and one of his closest friends. And when a church was struggling, it was Timothy who Paul would send to calm the waters. Um, which is a really cool role to have. He would be arriving sometime after Epaphroditus to guide the Philippian congregation through their various struggles and sufferings until Paul himself could return to his beloved Philippi in person. So that's the plan. Now you understand the plan. Epaphroditus will go first, 
He'll bear messages. Uh, Timothy will come later to deal with the issues that Paul has set, set out in the letter of Philippians. And then Paul will eventually get there someday, hopefully himself. That's the plan. But of course, what's truly significant about this passage isn't the plan itself. The true significance of this passage is the honor and praise that Paul heaps upon those two esteemed friends and colleagues of his who are carrying out the plan for him. Listen to what Paul says about Timothy. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. That's pretty glowing praise. There's nobody else like Timothy. He basically calls everyone else in Rome trash compared to Timothy because they're only looking out for themselves, which is what he had said back in Philippians 1. So that's not exactly news. Everyone else had selfish motives for their spreading the gospel, not Timothy. Nothing selfish about our Timmy boy. Everything Timothy does is for the sake of others whom he is serving and for the sake, ultimately, of Jesus Christ. Paul then basically calls Timothy his son because of his loyalty in serving alongside the apostle to spread the gospel of Christ. So, speaks very highly, gives lots of honor to Timothy. And if Timothy is a son, then Epaphroditus is a brother, co-worker, and a fellow soldier, not to mention an apostle, a message bringer, and a servant. And all those five glowing terms are just in one verse. That's just in verse 25. Paul calls him a um, brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, apostle, and servant. Man, if, if any of you called me one of those things, I would be thrilled. And Epaphroditus gets all five. Um, Paul who is suffering greatly, would have had exponentially greater suffering had God not shown mercy to his friend Epaphroditus. Along with being proof that it's possible to rejoice and serve God faithfully while also experiencing grief and sadness, which is something that we don't, I I think we take for granted. Somebody can be sad, but also still filled with joy. They are not mutually exclusive. And Paul is demonstrating that here. Because he's rejoicing in the midst of all his struggles. If Epaphroditus had died, it would have been struggle upon struggle, and still he would have rejoiced. That is possible. Because joy has nothing to do with emotions. It has everything to do with our mindset of who we are in Jesus. It also proves just how highly Paul thought of Epaphroditus for his commitment to service over selfishness. As Paul writes in verses 29 and 30, Epaphroditus is to be honored because he risked his life to advance the gospel by helping Paul when nobody else could or would. Epaphroditus did. He's worthy of honor for that. All of this together, all of these words Paul says about his friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus, is like Paul playing the videotape of Sir Nicholas Winton and having Paul join along with the Philippians and standing and giving them a rousing ovation for the excellent um, servants of Christ that they were. It's very lavish praise heaped on two very common and mundane kingdom workers for acts of selflessness and sacrifice and service. And that, that right there, that last phrase, heaping praise on selfless, sacrificial, servant-hearted kingdom servants, that right there is the reason why Paul suddenly inserts his travel plans immediately after telling the Philippians they need to do a better job of conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's why he, he crams these travel plans out of, in the middle of nowhere into this narrative. It's because Timothy and Epaphroditus are walking, talking, living, breathing examples of everything he has just instructed the Philippians about. He basically says, 
behave in this manner. And then he names two excellent leaders who are behaving in exactly the way he's just finishing telling them how to behave. So he says, do these things. And here's two excellent examples of young men who are doing what I'm telling you to do. That's why he holds them up like this. They are his sermon illustrations. They are like me showing you a weepy YouTube clip of some octogenarian getting a standing applause. That's, that's why, that, that's what he's doing. They are his sermon illustration. They are his examples that Paul wants the rest of the Philippians to emulate in order to better bring glory to Jesus. Back in chapter two, or we're still in chapter two, back in verses three and four, Paul wrote, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. That's what he commands. That's what Jesus, through Paul, commands the Philippians and the Clydeans to do. Look out for other people, not just yourself. Timothy is held as a role model above all others in verses 20 and 21 for that exact reason. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, not his own welfare, for your welfare. For everyone looks out for themselves, their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Timothy is a shining example of someone who looks out for the interests of others, which is what Paul's instructed the Philippians to do. Epaphroditus, similarly, was looking out for Paul's interests when he delivered the offering at risk of his own health. He was more worried about Paul and about the furthering of the gospel in Rome than he was for himself when he got sick and still brought the the offering to Paul. But then there's Paul himself. Remember back in the intro I said we'd examine three men and a bonus fourth? Well, Timothy and Epaphroditus are the first two, but Paul is the third man who serves as an exemplar for the Philippians about how to glorify God with your behavior and your actions. By sending Epaphroditus and later Timothy back to Philippi, he's denying two tremendously helpful assets that he could use for himself and instead sends them back to Macedonia for the benefit of his friends who are suffering and need encouragement and need training. He too is looking out for the interests of others rather than his own interests, right? If you're in house prison, you have no way to care for yourself. It'd be nice to have two guys you trust there caring for you. But he he holds them loosely. He lets them go because they're needed elsewhere. The act of sending Epaphroditus back for the purpose of easing the anxieties and concerns of all involved is further proof of his Christ-like attitude of valuing others above himself. So that's the first thing. Look out for the interests of others. Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul, they're doing that. They're looking out for the interests of others over the interests of, the, interests of themselves. Meanwhile, Epaphroditus exemplifies another lesson Paul taught earlier in chapter 2 a lesson on sacrifice. In verse 8, Jesus is praised for submitting to death, even death on a cross. Death could not halt Jesus' mission of selfless love for others. The same is true for Epaphroditus, who risked the last drops of health and safety to ensure the Philippian gift reached Paul. Paul relied heavily on those financial gifts. As I mentioned, if you're in a Roman prison, even house arrest, the state doesn't provide you with food, Health supplies, sanitation, they don't do anything for you. You you are completely reliant on the kindness of others, which, by the way, is why Jesus is so big on go to prisoners. That that is another sacred calling. There's orphans, widows, immigrants, but right in there, go to the imprisoned. They have no one else to look for them, look out for them. No matter how terrible their crime is, care for them. They deserve dignity. So there's a lesson there too. But in refusing to cave to fear of death and in selflessly carrying out his mission of service, Epaphroditus becomes an honorable example of sacrifice for the sake of others and the sake of gospel, 
even in the risk of death, even in the face of, of terrible sickness and death, he did this thing. So he's a model for sacrifice. Moreover, just as God responded to Christ's obedience by exalting Jesus' name above all other names, so too does Paul urge the Philippians to welcome Epaphroditus back home with great esteem and honor. So Jesus humbled himself even to death. And what did God do? Welcomed him back and lifted his name up in honor. That's exactly what Paul is now doing for Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's saying, welcome Epaphroditus back and lift his name up in honor. The name of Epaphroditus is lifted, obviously not to the height of the name of Jesus Christ. No name ever could be, but it's still lifted up in honor. Timothy's name is likewise held up in high esteem. They are men, those are honors befitting men who serve selflessly and sacrificially, who tirelessly sought the good of those around them, even at expense to themselves, rather than selfishly or arrogantly or conceitedly looking out for themselves and their own wishes. That encouragement, that's the third thing that's being modeled here. That encouragement and honoring the name of deserving servants is a very Christ-like thing to do. And finally, the fourth thing, over and above all of these things, we have three men, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, serving as examples of the cherry on top that we've been talking about endlessly throughout Philippians. They are examples of unity. Paul commends Epaphroditus to the Philippines for the sake of unity. Timothy is being sent to fill in the cracks of selfish dissension and repair the unity that's beginning to break in Philippi for the sake of unity. And in the NIV, it's easy to miss, but in verse 20 where it says, I have no one else like Timothy, that no one else is, I li- literally in the Greek is, I have no one as like-minded as him. It's a derivative of the same word used in verse 2, translated being in one spirit in the NIV. Paul and Timothy are of one mind and of one spirit in their pursuit of bringing glory to God, just as Paul had earlier compelled the Philippians to be of one mind and one spirit and one soul in their shared pursuit as well. So his bond with Timothy and Epaphroditus is the same kind of unity he's saying the Philippians need to have if they're to be successful. He's reusing the language of unity because the whole darn thing is a plea for unity in the church. Without unity, we have no witness and our conduct will crumble at the seams. So these three men are exemplars of that unity, not to mention the selflessness and sacrifice necessary to be a person worthy of honor in the kingdom of God. Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul are examples of this. Sacrifice, service, and bringing honor to one another for the sake of unity. Which brings me to the fourth mystery person you may be wondering about. Well, since Paul is is holding up Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples to follow, and since Paul is himself an example for us to follow, in fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 3, he will literally literally say, join together in following my example. That's what he'll say to the Philippians. But there's one more man who is worthy of honor, who we must make mention of this morning, and that is obviously Jesus himself. All of the honorable words that we speak are provided by him and result in his praise. All of the honorable things we do are fueled by his guidance and are for his benefit. All of the honorable traits we bear are grown by his spirit and are for his glory. Anything honorable about us comes from him and is for him. There have been three distinctly honorable character traits mentioned in our passage. Uh, One, selflessly looking out for the good of others. That's what um, Paul, Epaphroditus, Timothy have been doing. Two, sacrificing self to benefit others. That's what Paul and Epaphroditus are tremendous examples of. 
And three, saluting others for their loving contributions to the gospel. Well, Jesus is the ultimate example of all three of these excellent, honorable traits. The ultimate example. Did Jesus selflessly look out for our interests rather than his own? Well, you bet. Absolutely he did. He agonized over that very thing in the garden and then chose to do it anyway. He was looking out for your interests and not his own. Did Jesus make the ultimate sacrifice and did we receive the ultimate benefit from that sacrifice? Yes, of course. He made that sacrifice even to death, death on a cross. And we're the ones who benefit from that. Did the Father salute Jesus for accomplishing his loving mission? And do we salute him as well with our faithful devotion and our thankful worship? Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, and yes. We saw all three of these things, sacrifice, um, selflessness, saluting others. We saw all three of those things. Um, all three are present in the story of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. All three are present in the story of Sir Nicholas, what's his name? Sir Nicholas Winton as well. Sacrifice, selflessness, and salutations. It's all there. And all three are ultimately, supremely, perfectly present in our Lord Jesus Christ. The man more worthy of honor than all other men and women combined. It's the kind of recognition that honor, sorry, it's the kind of recognition of honor that can bring a grown man like myself to tears. This is what I want us to learn and take away and apply. This, this selflessness, this sacrifice, this saluting others. So before I wrap up, I wanted to take this opportunity to honor you, my brothers and sisters. If I compiled a list of all the things that you do that are worthy of honor, it would be much, much, much larger than Paul's list of things that are honorable about Timothy and Epaphroditus. You are good people who are worthy of honor. Out of this conversation, I want you to know, and I told them that I would be sharing this, that Bill and Dale and I have been having conversations about the vacant co-chair position that that we need to fill. Um, Dale and Bill are men of honor. Horst, who filled that position for a long time, is also a tremendous man of honor. And it's a pleasure to work with these men of honor and their wives of honor, because you wives absolutely have a central role in all of this. It's a pleasure and an honor for me to work with such men of honor. Um, we are hoping to present something to you as a church body in the coming weeks. Um, that's our hope. There's some things that need to happen, but as we have these conversations, a few things have become clear. And one of the most beautiful things that's become clear is that there are so many of you who are very, very worthy of honor. So many of you already give selflessly, like it says here. So many of you make consistent sacrifices of time and money and energy. And so many of you do these honorable acts without need or desire of recognition or acclaim. You just do them because you know it needs to be done. There's nothing more honorable than that than to serve and to sacrifice because you see it needs to be done and you don't need any praise, any acclaim for it. That's the most honorable thing in the kingdom of God. That is true servant-heartedness. And so many of you do that all the time. There are probably many I don't see, but there are many things that I do see, whether it's cleaning floors or preparing snacks or writing community messages or donating for missionaries or offering encouragement to others or leading Sunday school or a thousand other things that you do for the kingdom and you deserve honor for them. But suffice it to say, you are excellent servants, worthy of honor, each one of you. And I don't always see all of it. I see lots of it. And I'm so thankful and grateful for you. As I said at the beginning, some of the greatest truths 
come out of the mundane, the unsuspecting, the tedious, and the commonplace elements of life. Some of the best things come out of the most unsuspecting places. Those are the places where glory can be found, and that's where honor really gets a chance to shine. Not like me up here in front of everyone. I don't deserve a lot of honor for that because I'm doing it in front of everyone. It's when you do acts of service and sacrifice in the background, the mundane things, the tedious things that nobody will ever notice. That's when you deserve honor. That's where glory happens. Nobody, and here's the thing on top of all this, and I mentioned filling the the co-chair position. Nobody ever needs a fancy title to be an honorable person who does honorable things. And Bill and Dale and Horst, when he filled that position, and Gordon, when he filled that position, they didn't do any of those things that they did because they had some title that was ascribed to them, ever. In fact, all of those men are reluctant to take on that title for that very humble reason, because it's not about titles. You don't need a title to do honorable things and to be an honorable person. All you need to be worthy of honor is to be selfless, sacrificial, and servant-hearted, as well as absolutely committed to the unity of the body of Christ, this particular body of Christ, as well as the larger body of Christ, for the sake of the body of Christ, to the glory of Christ the King. That's what, that's what makes you honorable. Selflessness, sacrifice, servant-heartedness, and commitment to unity. Looking out for others instead of yourself. And anyone can do that. And when a person gets named and, and is given that title, they will do so not because they have a title. They will do so because that's what they've always done. And the title is a recognition of that. And even if no, even if you don't get the title, and I know nobody's sitting here like, I need that thing. That's, I want that real bad. I, I know you guys aren't like that. I know your humility. So even if the title doesn't come to you, I know you're going to continue to do these things because that's who you are, because you love Jesus very much, because the Holy Spirit is active in you. None of you need titles, as in like you shouldn't want them, and none of you need titles in that you don't want them. That's not who you are, and that's what I love about you. That's what I love about serving with you. You do it because it's right. There's nothing more honorable than that. So there are many excellent candidates for this vacant position, but the greatest thing of all is that we know you don't feel the need to have a title to keep being servants of Jesus who are worthy of honor. We know you don't need it. Many of you are deserving of some kind of title for something. But we know you don't need it, and that is a special thing. I know it's a little awkward coming from me since I have a title, pastor, and I get paid for my title, so I know I'm probably not the right messenger for this. But I try to lead in a way that that demonstrates selflessness, sacrifice, and giving honor to others. I try to, and I don't always succeed at that. But whether you have a title or not, the most honorable thing is to be servant-hearted, sacrificial, selfless, without any need of recognition. Because you know who's going to recognize you in the end for those things? Your Lord and Master will recognize you for them. Well done, good and faithful servant. So, keep growing as men men and women of honor. Continue to look out for the good of others first. Continue to make sacrifices to further the gospel and love your neighbor. Continue to point out the excellence you see in one another as brothers, sisters, co-workers, and fellow soldiers. Continue to be honorable and to bring honor to the one who is most worthy of honor, and that's Jesus. And continue to weep during cheesy Tim Hortons commercials so your pastor doesn't feel like the only whimpering doofus in the building. You are honorable people, and it's my great honor to serve alongside you honorable people. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you for how you are growing and shaping each one of us into something that looks more like your son. Thank you for all the selflessness and all the sacrifice and all the willing to uh, support one another and all the unity that we have together. Father, I thank you for all those things. I thank you for the tremendous servants of of you that these people are. And it's an honor and a privilege, privilege to be among them and to serve with them. And Father, I pray that out of those honorable traits that they have, I pray that out of the unity that you're growing in us, that we would continue to expand your kingdom and further your kingdom and and draw others in to the salvation that you offer. I thank you for all that these people do um, for Angie and I and for this community and for this church. I thank you for all the ways that they lay down their own lives to look out for the interests of others, and they are excellent models of you in that, Jesus. Thank you for the honor of being your family. I pray that we return that honor back to you because you are very worthy. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Just imagine in 50 years what you'll find out about how great I am. (laughs) Suffice it to say, you are excellent servants, worthy of honor, each one of you. And I'm so thankful and grateful for you.